Welcome back to the KPL Podcast. I am your host, Jigisha. This week on the podcast, I am talking to author Cheryl A. Head. We'll be discussing Time's Undoing, her latest novel. This is a novel about a young Black journalist's search for answers in the unsolved murder of her great-grandfather in segregated Birmingham, Alabama, decades ago. And it's inspired by the author's own family history. Birmingham, 1929, Robert Lee Harrington, a master carpenter, has just moved to Alabama to pursue a job opportunity, bringing with his pregnant wife and young daughter. This is a dual timeline story, so then it switches to 2019, Megan McKenzie, the youngest reporter at the Detroit Free Press, has grown up hearing family lore about her great-grandfather's murder. But no one knows the full story of what really happened back then, and his body was never found. We had a wonderful discussion about her book, so let's get started. Hello, listeners. Today on the podcast, I have Cheryl A. Head, and she is here to tell us about her new book, Time's Undoing. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jagisha. So nice to be with you. So tell us about the book. Uh, I believe it's uh, based on your grandfather. Is that correct? That's, that's correct. Uh, it's a, it's crime fiction, but based on a personal tragedy in my family. Uh, my grandfather was killed by Birmingham, Alabama police in 1929. It's a story that my family, of course, has held for decades. We didn't have a lot of detail about his, his murder because it was Jim Crow South, Birmingham, Alabama. Black people didn't really complain and live <laughs> about police yes. excessive force. But it's a story I've wondered about writing for a long, long time, but without the details to do it, I just didn't take it on until after George Floyd's murder. Mm-hmm. And then I felt compelled to write it. Um, it's set in dual timelines and dual narratives. Um, the contemporary timeline is a fictionalized uh, African-American newspaper journalist, Megan McKenzie, who convinces her editorial staff that she wants to go to Birmingham to suss together the clues of an unsolved murder of a Black man shot by police. She she covers the Black Lives Matter beat. And uh, and then she says, this is my, my great-grandfather's death. And so she goes off to Birmingham to try to put together the clues of that. And then the second timeline is in the voice of the of the great grandfather who mm-hmm. really describes his last days as a 28 year old black man in Birmingham. I was curious why you decided to do this as a fictional story as opposed to nonfiction and just telling mm-hmm. the story about your grandfather. Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. And uh, it's it's two parts. Um, I don't have, I didn't have enough detail, I thought, to really write it as a memoir mm-hmm. or as a, a nonfiction uh, book. Um, whispers about how he died when my mom was younger. She was two at the time, lived with my my grandfather and my grandmother in Birmingham. So for most of her early life, she didn't know a lot of the, de- the details. Black people were really afraid to talk about it, even though my grandmother and mother were whisked back to St. Petersburg after his death. The, the police in St. Pete had been notified of his death. They were afraid what, what kind of reaction there might be from both the Klan element in St. Pete and in mm-hmm. Birmingham and, and the police department itself. So 
you know, my mom and I had talked, my mom's still alive, 95 years old in St. Petersburg, Florida. And she and I had talked about writing it, you know, she thought she might even write it, but again, without enough fact, I, I just didn't feel like I could do justice to the story. And so when I was talking to the publisher about it, they thought we really need to emphasize that this is crime fiction, but it allowed me to have the, the freedom to really imagine what his life would have been like and his his day-to-day activities and also the the elements of his his interactions with police and ultimately his death. Yeah, I could see, I could see that. So tell us a little bit more about your main character Megan. Now, how did she come about and is she based on you? No. <laughs> She's smarter, younger, has more courage. <laughs> She, I, I have worked in media and I worked in news and media, uh, not on the newspaper side. So I thought who better than a journalist could go after these facts, could have the, both the, the resources and the initiative to go after finding facts when you, when not a lot of facts are known. So that, that was my conceit in making her a journalist. Um, I had, I was doing research when I was writing the book, and there were a couple of times when I felt like we were doing parallel work as I wrote about her investigating this. Mm-hmm. I was doing my own kind of investigation. She's a she's a young woman who is in the early parts of her career, but still wants very much to be taken seriously, wants to do a really credible job. And like I said, has a lot of courage to follow the leads where other people don't want the leads to go. So, uh, but she's not, I'm not, I, I never would have that much courage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, tell us about some of the research that you had to do. Did you, as you said, you didn't have a lot to go on because people weren't right. talking about it, but um, what type of research did you do? And did you learn anything new and surprising that you hadn't known? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I thought, okay, where to start? I, I, my first instance uh, of, of research was like ancestry.com. I thought, let me just go into ancestry.com and see what comes up. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a new resource for writers. It hadn't been around uh, decades before. So I started there, got a few dribbles and drabbles, putting his name in. His name is Robert Harrington, my grandfather. Um, but Ancestry has a relationship with newspapers.com. So I signed up for that. And then I started pouring through archives of black newspapers and mainstream newspapers in Birmingham, Alabama. And there were dozens and dozens of newspapers during that time uh, and and now. I mean, literally hours upon hours of putting in Robert Harrington in the search engine, different keywords to try to see what would come up. I think it must have been two or three months into the research that I got a hit from newspapers.com, which was an article that actually had a headline that said, local Negro killed by Birmingham, Alabama police. It was an article uh, buried in a page of other kinds of news in the St. Petersburg Times in 1929 in June, and it listed my father's name and his address. And it was just like mind blowing to find that. I remember calling my mom after some tears and and, and telling her I found proof of your story, mom. With that information, I was able then to get his death certificate, which we had never had. Mm -hmm. For a death certificate, you need to have the actual date of the deceased. Um, And uh, we didn't have that, but I was able to then find that document. And then because I knew roughly the timeline of when he lived there, I was able to find other things like 
his name and his and my grandmother's name and the city directory so I knew what street they lived on and that kind of thing. Now, were they originally living in Birmingham? Were they originally from there? They were both from St. Petersburg, Florida. Oh, okay. The stories I've heard is my my grandfather went to um, Birmingham to work as a carpenter mm-hmm. at the, when when Birmingham was in its um, heyday of being a, a steel producer. So they were they were called the Magic City, the Pittsburgh of the South, and lots of people were coming there to work. And my grandfather had been a, a master carpenter, and he went there to work on the homes of homes and buildings of uh, the magnets who were working in the steel industry, uh, taking his young wife uh, and my my grandmother, my mother at the time, uh, and, and for a temporary stay in Birmingham. So now, and let me know if this is a spoiler, so I'll cut it out, uh, my okay. next question, but uh, did you know where your grandfather was buried? I, no, and we still don't know where my oh, grandfather okay. was buried. The death certificate lists a mortuary, which I have been trying to track, mm-hmm. I've not so far been able to do that. I've had some help from the Birmingham Public Library. Uh, they gave me a lead on the name of the mortuary because it turns out it was in a directory for one year, but we still have not been able to find that, uh, follow that lead. I've called individual uh cemeteries, especially the ones I know are in Black neighborhoods at the time. And people have been really generous with their time and their interest and their support. I called uh, one lady who worked at a a cemetery. They have an old section of the cemetery. And she said all archives, of course, are not digital. And she had to go to some other building and go in some basement and dig through those looking for his name, which she did over a couple of weeks and called me back and said, no, we don't find him listed. So that's still a mystery that I'm in the process of wanting to solve, if I can, for my mom. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I hope I hope you're able to to find it. Thank you. Thank you. Now, I would really like to get a better sense of what the time period was like for so St. Petersburg versus um, Birmingham. Uh, Birmingham. How yeah. how were they similar and how were they different, especially yeah. for African Americans? Yeah. So in 1929, St. Pete was still a very small town, uh, very segregated. Everything was segregated, of course, in both cities. Um, St. Pete had a flourishing Black community. Um, Everybody knew everybody else. (laughs) Everybody was related in some ways to everybody else. But it was also a place where the Klan had a foothold, just as in Birmingham. Birmingham was a much bigger city, a booming city at that time. My grandparents would have been amazed at kind of the the level of sophistication that was in that city. Um, they had it was very still very segregated, but even the black communities in Birmingham had a thriving life, uh, daily life, and in a couple of sections, a, a section called Tuxedo Junction, which had kind of the arts and entertainment areas, and then another area which was called the Fourth Street Business District, where a lot of the small businesses run by blacks for blacks or or situated um and so it was um birmingham was a much more you know sophisticated city but also much more sophisticated in uh, in in its segregation and its prejudice in my opinion mm-hmm. all all southern cities had um, jim crow laws but Birmingham also had something called the Black Codes that really prescribed how Black people could live and limited how what things they could do. So in addition to the, the codes, uh, in addition to the laws, there, there were these kind of un, unlegislated 
prescriptions about how black people could interact with white people and what they could do. For instance, the one that always kind of gets to me is black and white people were not allowed to play checkers together in Birmingham, Alabama for a long period of time. It was against the law. You know, you would be Mm -hmm. snatched up by the police and or citizens if you did that. Transportation, of course, was segregated. Schools were segregated. Black people were buried in black cemeteries, white people buried in white cemeteries. But I wanted to get a sense of that life because I know that people also thrived, managed to thrive, Mm -hmm. have joy and love and life in these communities. And so I try to, to show some of that in the scenes in 1929 even though we know it's these, these scenes are leading to the death of this black man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, uh, you know, as I've talked to a lot of different authors uh, in the last couple of years, I've learned a lot of things that I hadn't been taught. And even in school, things that are not mentioned. Yeah. Uh, for example, the um, uh, sundowning, I think is what it's called, the sundowning town. So that was right. completely new for me. Yeah, uh, it's amazing. Thing- yeah, I mean, the, the fact that Black people and black men in particular after sundown should not be seen on the streets because they would fall victim to the Klan in in some cases and police officers and others. Uh, There is a scene in the book where my grandfather uh, is bringing his his bride from St. Pete to to Birmingham and he's very that's one of his concerns is to getting Mm -hmm. to the next safe house before the sun goes down in one of these small towns that they have to travel through before they get to their destination. Yeah, I mean, what we don't know is so interesting to me, especially at a time when we're banning books (laughs) about the history of people of color, you know? Mm -hmm. These are kind of things that I think give context to our lives now. And so when I hear people talking about critical race theory, misapplying it to literature and, uh, you know, what the hurts that they might have if their children are allowed to read some of the stuff. I'm thinking, no, it really gives context Mm -hmm. to where we are now, what our current state of racial um, justice is and social justice is, why race continues to be this thorn in the side of America's greatness, in my opinion. And so I think more of those stories need to be told, not less. Oh, agreed. Absolutely. And I mean, we all need to be educated. I just can't believe the lack of education. Like, it, there's a big hole in the education system because of right. that. Right. Absolutely. I never even heard about much about slavery. And I'm, I'm a lot older than you. Even in our public schools, you know, you, slavery was mentioned in the context of probably Abraham Lincoln, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And then because I was in school in Detroit, we didn't hear anything about the Southern uh, role in slavery or any of that context. And it was just... You know, for a lot of Black people, it was a hurtful period. The, the slavery, Jim Crow, um, those, those days after uh, slavery um, were just kind of points of shame because we never saw stories of resistance. You know, we never saw anything about how Black folks were beat down and you know, and how hor- horrific slavery was. So I think we do need stories about how Black people thrived, how Black people still found ways to have joy and love and managed to persist mm-hmm. under those those harsh conditions. Yeah. And all people, all people of color, I mean, the stories of Native Americans and Chinese Americans and Japanese Americans, and, you know, it goes on and on. Yeah, agreed, definitely. So one of the things, and again, if this is a spoiler, I will definitely cut it out. Uh, there was the mention of sort of the corruption in the system, even so, even in the modern timeline that you were writing. Now, is that something you come came mm-hmm. across in your research? Is that still something yes. that's still happening? 
Yes, it is. So I, my, um, I, I write a series called the Charlie Mack Motown Mysteries. And I have six books in those series. So this was really a departure for me to do this standalone book. But in the sixth book uh, called Warn Me When It's Time, it looks at the nascent beginnings of hate groups and white supremacist groups in Michigan, in Detroit, Michigan in particular, uh, because I was kind of wanting to understand what brings people to think they can uh, kidnap and murder the governor of Michigan. So, you know, you're reading the headlines and you're thinking, what the, what the hell? <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. So I started looking into these hate groups. Um, they're ubiquitous uh, across the country. The Southern Poverty Law Center does a really good job of kind of monitoring these groups. They crop up all the time with new names, new members. Mm -hmm. It's not just a phenomenon of the United States. It's a worldwide phenomenon, unfortunately. I kind of embedded myself in these groups for a couple of months in my research for that book, Warn Me When It's Time. You can go to their chat rooms. They're not secret. They're not hidden. That's it makes it even more horrific. And the, as you read the threads of conversation where there's hatred spewed against not only people of color, but Jewish people, uh, Catholics. I mean, it's just it's just mm -hmm. a horrifying state of being. And so I wanted to make sure that the contemporary uh, scenes in the book uh, gave a nod to the fact that those those groups that, that, you, that you think are historic uh, wrongs and the historic uh, groups in, in America's history are still alive and thriving. Yes. And I think it surprised me that it was in the in the government and in the police force. And that was yes. a big shock to me. Yeah, they're finding, you know, as they do more and more of the cases in the January 6th uh, insurrection in Washington, D.C., how many people were both in the military and in law enforcement as they mm -hmm. identify the people involved in that. So, yeah, it's um, it's kind of disparaging. This yeah. is kind of discouraging and disparaging for their soul. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Now, you said that uh, writing this book was a, was a departure from your Charlie yeah. Mack series. So could you talk a little bit more about that? How is this different? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, crime fiction. So it's embedded in that. But I always felt sometimes that crime fiction, at least the way I write it, because I'm very seriously a plotter. Uh, have an outline, usually I do a kind of a hybrid thing now. I, I'll write it until I go to get to a point where I think, where's the story going? And then I sit down and outline the rest of it. Um, but the Charlie Mack series is set in Detroit, uh, mid-2000s, which is kind of a really troublesome era for Detroit. They're on the brink of bankruptcy. The mayor is being investigated by the FBI. Uh, they're just getting over the moniker of the uh, murder capital of the world, you know, kind of thing. And so it's a great place to set a crime uh, fiction story because there's lots of murder and mayhem mm -hmm. foot and, and, and the opportunities for that are rife. Uh, but the, the, the protagonist in that uh, book, Charlie, Charlene Mack, is a lesbian, uh, African-American, runs her own private investigation agency. And I wanted to really put uh, a black woman front and center in as a as a private investigator, a professional private investigator. Um, and I'm I actually have fun writing that particular book. I didn't have much fun, <laughs> that much fun writing the standalone. Mm -hmm. um, but Charlie, because she runs her own agency and has other agency within the city, like so many black women do in Detroit and other kind of majority black cities, uh, she's surrounded by partners of uh, all hues and, and races. And I wanted to really talk uh, talk about race and also tolerance mm -hmm. and uh, how 
how a group of people can um, have this kind of uh, kind of this uh, this uh, agency and this kind of uh, reputation for doing great work in a city led by a black woman. Um, uh, five books in the series. I, I I go from thriller to more internal stories, and I'm following a timeline um, that I think uh, I think will get me maybe two or three more books in that series. So now, do you see yourself uh, bringing Megan back in another? Maybe, you know, maybe. Um, I kind of interested as a writer, and I, I hope readers will feel this too. I'm kind of interested in what happens to not only Megan and Darius, this love she kind of finds in, in, mm -hmm. in Birmingham, but also um, also Kristen, who helps her, the mm -hmm. librarian, who a young white woman who's, you know, real intense and smart and has her own kind of power in, in Birmingham, but who is also part of the power structure there. Her father very much part, part of the power structure there. I kind of want to know what happens for her. You know, she seems like a good person to me. And I, 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 I'm tinkling with the idea of a, a, a next story that involves the three of them and mm -hmm. some resolution for Kristen. Yeah, yeah, I think that would be great to, yeah. to dive in deeper with the three of them. Yes, yes, so that's what I'm thinking of. So now can we talk about the 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 cover, the design of the cover? Were you Absolutely. a part of making the cover design? Because I really think it's a great design with the the woman, the grandfather, yeah. and then the roots. And... Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I, I do too. I love that cover. Um, I'll give all good credit to uh, the Dutton Books design team. They gave me, they they really involved me in the in the cover selection, which doesn't always happen for authors, but uh, they came up with several different kind of uh, moods and models and designs. This was in the like the third iteration of designs. I said to them, I'd like to have a black woman on the cover, some kind of image of a black woman on the cover. And they came up with this abstract design uh, of this profile of a black woman. The you know you, you have to know the story to see understand kind, kind of where the wood grain fits into it but it's kind of a stylized wood grain mm -hmm. and they presented that and i said I, I really love it but i think it only takes care of one of the timelines i think it really needs to have the image of the grandfather somewhere in that book uh, how, how can you incorporate that so i have one picture of my grandfather uh, on his wedding day. Mm -hmm. And so I provided that picture and they were able to incorporate that image in the in kind of the hair of the of the protagonist on the cover. And I think they did a, a wonderful job. I'm really proud of that cover. I think it's striking. And I think once you read the story, we'll have even more, it'll be connected to it even mm -hmm. more. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. And even the color choices, because I love the blue yeah. against that sort of that red, orange, reddish brown kind of yeah brown. yeah yeah we played around with the covers and i i'd been looking at other covers and given and given the team maybe a half dozen covers that i like for different reasons and you know the whole orange blue against the orange uh, orange brown against the uh the blue i thought was just so the contrast was so striking and vibrant mm -hmm. <laughs> So what's next for you? Are you working on another Charlie Mack book now? I know you said you had two or three, or are you yeah. going to something else? Yeah, I'm, I'm working on three things. Yeah, I, I really, you must admit as a writer, and maybe other writers have this, you know, last year when I was in the process of doing final edits and doing the copy edit work and the social media and the promotion of the book and all that, I had a hard time writing. I, I felt like I was being torn in 
two directions, but in the last couple of months, I've been back in the saddle <laughs> with the writing and I'm working on three things at one time, which is the way I do things because uh, I'll get bored otherwise. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I have, have a few ideas for the next Charlie book. I've started off writing all three of them to see which one really has traction for me in my soul. And then uh, I'm uh, just playing around maybe with the outline of what the with what a sequel to Times Undoing might look like, and it described the, uh, you know, really bring out what's what's next for Darius and Megan and for for Kristen, and then um, I'm also writing, and this is the one that's the most fun for me, but also the biggest challenge. I'm writing a western. I really love the genre of westerns, the classic westerns. I, I'm a nerd that way, and I know it's not politically correct because all kind of bad things happen to people of colors in westerns. But my conceit is uh, my protagonist is a black woman who writes Westerns mm -hmm. uh, and she fell in love with them because she used to watch them on television with her father. And she has um, sensitivity readers who are Native Americans who are friends of hers. And she has a really deep relationship with a, a family, uh, the uh, indigenous family. And she finds a way through the spiritual work of one of her Native American friends to go back in time and to fix some of the wrongs that happen in the West. So it's kind of uh, some time travel and a little bit of speculative fiction and some crime fiction and Western, it's an amalgam and it's a hot mess right now. <laughs> but, but the story intrigues me and I love the research I'm doing mm -hmm. because I think that's another one of the really untold stories about how horrific our government was to the Native American population that was here well before any of us got here. Yes, absolutely. And that, yeah, that sounds really good. So I will look it's forward scary. to that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so last question we always ask yeah. our author guests is, sure. um, what are you reading or what do you recommend we read? Oh, I have one that I really recommend. Um, and it's getting a lot of buzz. It's by a young Native American writer named, uh, her name is Ramona Emerson. Mm -hmm. Her book is called Shuttered. And her protagonist is a Native American police uh, crime photographer. And it's the language is beautiful. The premise is very interesting. The point of view of the protagonist is one we have we don't always hear. And I highly recommend that book. It's called Shuttered. And the author's name is Ramona Emerson. And I read it in I read sections of it in its early iterations. Uh, lovely book. All right, I will keep an eye out for that. Yeah, it's out now. So uh, I guess what I get one more question. What do you hope okay, to take away from your book? A great question, Jagisha. Um, I really wrote it. I really wrote it hoping that it would start and continue a conversation about policing in America. Mm -hmm. That it would help young readers understand, especially the ones who have been involved so deeply in the protests and the demonstrations about uh, excessive force in police departments. Um, help them understand that this is not a new phenomenon, but mm -hmm. one that has a trajectory that goes decades and in some cases hundreds of years in America. I think it's good for folks to have that context mm -hmm. uh, because I, like like so many of them, it's a kind of the serial outrage every time we have one of these incidents. Unfortunately, there's going to be another one, you know, uh, mm -hmm. there's no end to it. I also have just written an op-ed for the Daily Beast where I, I propose at least 
one remedy might be to take the George, George Floyd Policing Act and right away institute some of the really, I think, thoughtful recommendations they make in that piece of legislation that can help us bridge um, a, 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 a relationship, a, um, a dialogue between police forces and the communities they protect and serve. Yes, yes, agreed. Well, listeners, Times and Doing is available right here at the Kirkwood Public Library or wherever fascinating books are sold. Cheryl, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. It's been such a pleasure. It's, I love talking about the book and I love supporting libraries, which I adore. That's our show this week. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned next week when I have author Sarah Penner and we'll be talking about the London Seance Society. I'm going to leave you now with a quote by Henry Glassy. History is not the past, but a map of the past, drawn from a particular point of view to be useful to the modern traveler.